when a flower doesn't bloom, you fix the environment in which it grows, not the flower. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast with me, your host, Austin Yoakum, and producer Marcus Sawson behind the scenes. This quote leads us into our guest today, Kyle Dobbs. Kyle has his master's in psychology, is the founder of Compound Performance, where he mentors coaches and works with online clients, and runs an online training community full of meat rockets, which we uh, discover and kind of dive deeper into on this podcast. On this podcast, we also talk about Coach Dobbs' story of falling down every rabbit hole and what he's learned through that process, how he can take really good points from certain systems that seem to have a lot of flaws and draw it into his own system. We talk about the difference between training athletes and non-athletes and how we're kind of butchering that in the field and treating non-athletes in quotations as fragile movers and fragile human beings. And finally, we talk about the difference between motivation and discipline and how us as strength coaches really get that confused and we kind of talk about the grind when we don't really realize what we're doing is just setting ourselves up in a better reward system than most people. This was a really, really awesome podcast from an even better dude. And I really hope you'd enjoy it as much as I did. I really love talking about kind of the mindset piece as most people know, but the, the mindset piece of coaching and how it really goes deeper than the three by 10. It really goes deeper than the sets and reps. And while that stuff is important, if you are working on the big pieces, on the foundational pieces and getting to know your athletes, really understanding what makes them tick and why their mind works the way it works, we can really take our athletes training to the next level. Thank you guys for listening. Before we hit the intro music, I wanted to introduce to you guys the Yoakum Strength Insider. The Yoakum Strength Insider is our online training platform that takes all of the ideas that we talk about on this podcast and implements them into a program that is available to you at the touch of your fingers. Our goal with the Yoakum Strength Insider is to create better movers, to level up your life, and to move forward from where you are. We do this in a holistic fashion. Not only will you receive a program that has helped hundreds of people become better movers, you'll also receive access to our app that allows you to track everything, has video links for all exercises, and allows you to be in constant communication with a Yoakum Strength Coach. Along with this, you'll get our 30-page PDF nutrition and lifestyle guidelines. That includes everything from what to eat, how much of it to eat, why we're eating it, meditation habits, and other lifestyle habits that we implement with our clients to really level up their lives. If you're interested in trying out one of these programs, use Podcast 25 in the discount section right before you pay for 25% off your first program. Marcus, you know what time it is. Hit that intro music. Boom. This is the Yoakum Strength Podcast. Take the leap down the rabbit hole with us as we interview elite level guests to unravel what high performance really is. Well, Coach, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Hey, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I'm always fun to talk to uh, like minds in the field as much as possible. So, yeah, trying to cover some of the Operation Meat Rockets, and uh, we, we've uh, we've kind of I've kind of met some meat rockets in my day, so I'm excited to uh, hear your thoughts on that. Uh, don't going on into the podcast, but can you tell us a little bit about your background, kind of how you got into the field, how you, you, you have a master's in psychology, which I think is something that we can touch on later in the podcast, but how you kind of have this outside approach to the field and how you kind of memeify the field. How did you get to that route? Cause everybody seems like they, that you kind of have to go through the box to break out of the box. And I mean, uh, I'm interested in your journey of how you got into the box in the first place and then how you kind of broke out of that box. Yeah, I actually, I like that explanation a lot and I've never heard that. And that definitely describes 
probably where I've been and kind of where I am now and, and hopefully where I'm headed down the road. But, you know, I'm similar to most strength coaches where I'm kind of like the, the often injured failed athlete that turned to, to lifting somewhere through their college realm. I was, uh, a biology chemistry double major in college with a physical science minor. And I played basketball and ran track. I ran track for only a year. I tore my hip flexor after my freshman year and my partial, partially torn hip flexor and then a, a torn labrum. And that kind of ended the track aspect. I was a 400 runner and I switched to full-time basketball, rehabbed it through, had a couple of other injuries and and kind of managed to spend more time in the training room than I did on the basketball court uh, throughout the, throughout my time there, but finished it out, graduated and got my CSCS kind of right out of school and was really interested in working with athletes. And obviously that was my own personal bias at the time. That's really all I knew from a training perspective. I, I grew up on a farm doing manual labor, the majority of my, my life and, and playing sports and, uh, I promptly found myself in the middle of Manhattan uh, about a year after I graduated. Um, my fian- well, my, my girlfriend and now wife, um, girlfriend at the time, worked in fashion. So we ended up being up there for almost 15 years. And I, I found myself in a, in a Globo gym in Union Square in the middle of Manhattan and realized that you know I was going to be training exactly zero athletes while I was there. So I kind of had to start looking at the demographic that I was working with and rework my education model and just my training model in general. And, and so that I could, you know, provide the best service possible to the people that were actually in front of me. And that was a challenge to, to 24 year old Kyle Dobbs. I think, um, definitely a, a shot at the ego as well. Cause there were a lot of things that I really loved doing that I just wasn't able to do, uh, due to constraints with the facility itself and with the people that I was working with and their, their goal selections. And, but I really learned to love it. And, I started taking a lot of like biomechanics courses and assessment based courses. Like I've been through them all, the FMS, the SFMA, the DNS, the FRCs, the PRIs, the, the IKNs and a bunch of other acronyms, you know, after all of those things and kind of fell down every rabbit hole, you know, and I think part of the reason uh, I post the things that I post now is simply because I've made all the mistakes and I've kind of gone through those processes and kind of seen what they lead to and and realized that the outcomes that I was providing people were not always the outcomes the people wanted as much as it's kind of what I was biased towards being within those models and, and, and kind of realized that wasn't necessarily the experience or that I wanted to give people, you know, from a training perspective. And throughout that whole process, um, I became a a top trainer in the company uh, nationwide for that, for that specific organization. I was doing 200 plus sessions a month for them and um, at their top tier and and making good money and being young in New York. And that was certainly fun. And then I kind of saw the, the light at the end of the tunnel with that, as far as, you know, this has a pretty low ceiling from a longevity perspective. Like I'm not going to be able to kind of handle this volume and there's really no way to grow except to keep adding more sessions, you know, to my, to my week, which I didn't really want to do. So I got into leadership and development and I, I learned, I started teaching onboarding, uh, for that organization. So I would work, you know, for a week essentially with every new hire in the New York area. And 
kind of take them through just the training protocols and the assessment protocols, the intake protocols that, that we had lined up for, for our new, you know, our new clients. And that was, that was fun. And I kind of got a love for, for education from that perspective as I went through that and, and realized that that was kind of a passion of mine is that I really liked working with coaches, um, which was a shift for me because I'd never really imagined myself uh, in education and it got into management, ended up being a, facility manager and national manager of the year for that organization, um, bringing in anywhere between 300 and $400,000 a month in PT revenue for the location that I was at. And then I got into district and regional management for that organization and, and eventually left just because of kind of the typical politics that you run into there where I wasn't really allowed to lead uh, the way that I wanted to uh, and manage the way that I wanted to. I kind of had to, to follow politics and, and some other some other guidelines that I didn't necessarily agree with at the time. And went to work for a private gym in New York called Peak Performance as their, as their um, training director and met a lot of really cool people. I got to meet Dr. Pat Davidson there. I met um, some guys at the Resilient Team from a physical therapy perspective. And and really got to kind of expand my knowledge base and become kind of the, the small fish in the pond again, you know, from an education perspective as well. And that was really enlightening to me and uh, really fun. It was just a new challenge. And that project, we were looking at expanding into kind of a super gym and due to a lot of things out of all of our controls from an investor perspective, it just fell through and it was a big project and we lost funding and we all kind of went our separate ways. And I went to work for another company based out of New York as their national director for for services and education, where at that point I was overseeing anywhere between three to four thousand uh, just trainers, instructors, whatever nationwide throughout you know fifteen to seventeen markets um, and seventy to eighty locations, uh, both New York and then all through the U.S. and some abroad, and did that for about two years before I was completely burnt out working, you know, 70 hour weeks and doing a lot of travel uh, as well. And, you know, and throughout that whole time also it's, you know, I'm a probably even, you know, first and foremost, not probably I first and foremost, a, a husband and a father, you know, and I was quickly finding out that I wasn't meeting my own expectations in, in either one of those areas due to a lot of my just work life issues. And, kind of came to a realization that I needed to step away from at least that part of the industry. And we moved back to the Midwest. We ended up moving back to the Midwest. I left my job and took about six months off and just spent time with my family and kind of reconnected and tried to figure out what I was going to do. And for a while, I wanted to look at starting, uh, you know, opening a gym, a brick and mortar here in St. Louis and kind of the same thing. I couldn't find a space that was right for what I wanted to do. Um, couldn't find the investment that I wanted for what I wanted to do and kind of floated around for a little bit. And, and it got to a point where I needed to start making money and, and do some things. And just for my own, you know, sanity, just get busy again, doing things. I don't do well when I'm not busy. Uh, so I started working remotely with clients. Um, kind of the same thing, just, you know, talked to a lot of my old clients, started talking with them and, and building out remote programming for them. And, and then I got into, more of the leadership side and the business side and, and working from a mentorship perspective with coaches um, and consulting with small facilities and got to the point within, you know, six to eight months that I was right back to working 30 to 35 hours a week. Now just on a computer from my, 
you know, guest bedroom rather than in, in an office, but really no better and scaled our business into a bunch of other service models and, and started providing more group things. I hired a couple employees and, you know, four years later, we've worked with right at about 700 people over the course of 2022 uh, or 2021 and um, are looking for more growth in 2022. Um, so it, it's definitely been a very interesting ride. Um, and I've kind of been able to see fitness from almost every level. I think from, you know, just being a new coach, trying to figure it out, um, to being a national director and VP for a company and overseeing thousands of employees and writing policy and profitability margins and talking to third-party vendors and investors and sitting in boardrooms and, and, and presenting in front of thousands of people and, and things of that nature. So it's been an interesting ride for sure. Yeah. I love that diversity of background. Like you mentioned, like you, you've kind of seen it from every single level and you, you, you mentioned how you fell down every rabbit hole and you've kind of made all the mistakes. Uh, and I think I love talking to coaches like you in that regard to where like you can kind of see the, the light now because you, you've been in the dark, you've been in that rabbit hole, you've been in the, the, the tough spot. How, how do you, cause this is something like I've been continually thinking about is like uh, the rebel or the person that memifies the field. Uh, cause I, I see myself like that and I'm like the young coach. So it's like, I mean, find the field, I'm saying these things. I think I see the field, but it's also like, you also have your own biases. You, you have your own rabbit holes that you're stuck in. How have you like, balanced memifying the field without turning yourself into a rabbit hole, without turning yourself into like another certain, another level. Like how, how have you gone about that? Yeah. I think my biggest, even, even when I'm making memes, like I'm always very careful in, within the context that I try to make them. And again, it's, it's a meme, right? It's like, it's the, it, the lack of nuance is kind of the point of it. Right. But, but I always try to make sure that I'm talking about concepts and, you know, not individuals, you know, first and foremost, because again, I have to catch myself all the time, just, just scrolling through Instagram and, and looking at content and, and understand that it's like, man, like this was me like four or five years ago, one, two years ago, 10 years ago, and, and, and showing people, you know, grace to go through their own journey and kind of figure things out on the other side. I think the the biggest thing that, that I see that, that kind of ruffles my feathers and, and again, something I've probably been guilty of in the past is, is just like the absolutism in systems and the kind of the dogmatic tribal mentality and how people kind of silo themselves off from, from others uh, within those systems. Right. And, and you kind of get almost value systems determined by acronyms behind your name, you know, in, in this industry a lot. And I think that's something that does, that does bother me just from a, a sheer, just tribal perspective. Like there's a lot of competition. And, and I think once coaches realize that this industry is a business and that all of these certifying bodies or all these education systems are businesses and that we're consumers, uh, you start getting a lot more self-awareness as to the messaging that's coming from them and kind of the, the dogma that's coming from them as well. And, you know, my biggest thing is just understanding that it's always the clients first and, it, and whether or not I have biases or preferences, you know, that that's fine. I think we all have biases and I think biases help us make more informed decisions. Hopefully they're, they're coming from a good place because I also don't think, uh, that word should always have a negative connotation, right? Because most of our biases are driven from our own experiences and positive outcomes, you know, with that, within those experiences, right? They are informed typically at least, right? You know, so when I'm looking at that, it's just making sure that the things that I'm doing or the interventions that I'm actually providing for a client match that client's goals and not necessarily just my goals for them, you know? And I think that's something that in the past I've been 
as guilty of anybody as where it's just like, I kind of looked at fitness through this algorithmic or, or system-based approach where it's like, okay, you're coming to me. I'm going to assess you. I'm going to see you have an anterior pelvic tilt and tight hip flexors. And we're going to go through X, Y, Z to try to work on your biomechanics. And then we're going to, you know, go off in this direction when the reality of it is uh, kind of what I found over time was a lot of the, that stuff was just kind of minutia, right? And it didn't really matter that much from an outcomes perspective. And then just from a pure experience perspective, probably drove more people away from fitness than it did towards their actual outcomes. And at that point, no one's winning, you know, and, and that's, that's even kind of what probably led me down like more of the, the, the psychology route and just understanding, um, how people perceive their environments and, and others within their environments and how that impacted, uh, you know, not only their intentions, but their outcomes, both from a psychological, a cognitive level and a, even a physiological level, because we are, we're literally producing different hormones when we're doing something we enjoy versus something we don't. Right. You know, it's like, whether you're talking about uh, dopaminergic effects or you're talking about different levels of adrenaline and, and kind of norepinephrine and epinephrine and glucocorticoids, just that stress response in the, this to the stimulus or the threat response to the stimulus is going to actually impact what our outcomes are at the cellular level on up. Right. And if I want to zoom all the way out of it, it's just literally looking at somebody who doesn't like what they're doing, not putting as much effort into something as if they liked it. Right. So as a coach, can I figure out what people actually like to do and then build my model around that thing? You know, so we, we do spend a lot of time helping coaches kind of build out their own models within our programs. That's one of our main focus. And, and rather than teaching them just what we do, because that might not work for them, we help them identify what they do really well and build a model around it, you know, and, and that's going to be different for every single people person in our group oftentimes. Right. But there's no right or wrong. It's just looking at like, what's your expertise? Who do you work with? What's your experience and how, how can you optimize this person's, you know, experience and, and results, you know, based on, based on your training uh, for the, for the biggest possible impact in return, you know, and I think that's, that's where we're looking at things probably more conceptually and not getting like, hyper-specific in, in the actual process of what they're doing, but looking more so, does your intervention match the client? Because yeah. if it doesn't and it's not aligned, you're, you're, you're probably headed in the wrong direction a lot of times. And looking at the program that way first, because I, that's something I struggle with in our field is that we look at it in like a, I say this all the time, but like we try to program in a bilateral push, unilateral, push, you know, like that's how yeah. we're programming first, rather than like you said, like if the, like if the athlete, if the non-athlete, whoever it is that you're working with, if the client doesn't enjoy it, like none of that matters. If you're not looking at it from the psychological aspect first, if you're not programming in a sense, psychologically first, you're not, you're never going to get that athlete one even if you get them through the workout, they're never going to show up again because they're going to hate it. You know, like you're not going to get that connection Two, if you get them through that workout, the intent's going to be so low, but that's where you have to, you have to program psychologically first to get the results that you want to get with that mm -hmm. athlete and finding a way to get the physical part that you want done. Yes. Like that, that's important. We want to be able to hit all of the aspects of the body, but just programming and thinking about it the way that you mentioned, I, I just, I, I feel like it's, it's not thought about conceptually in that way first. It's thought mm -hmm. very physically and wrote down in like this pretty sheet and pretty perfect like program first without understanding that part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think that's what truly individualizes a program, right? It's not exercise selection and sets and reps, right? Like it's, if we look at like programming and periodization, it's just, 
dosing out stimulus and dosing out stress over a prolonged period of time, right? For, for recovery and adaptation, exercise selections are just the vehicles, right? For that stress. And, and those can be variable, but what really sets most programs apart are the experience you're actually providing for the person in front of you, right? And understanding not only what they need, like any assessment will give us, you know, some biomechanical considerations or some physiological considerations if it's, if it's, you know, more aerobically based or, or whatever, but it's really just looking at like, how do you frame that or how do you frame those exercises around their actual goals? And, and sometimes it's just how you communicate with them, how you provide feedback for people, you know, and understanding how people receive feedback and understanding how people bias themselves toward that is also going to be super important and in, in driving more positive outcomes down the road. And, you know, again, I don't think everybody has to be a psychologist, right? It's the same way that everybody doesn't have to be an RD or a physical therapist or, or whatever, but you should at least be aware really early on when you're talking to somebody, like what are their levels of extroversion, right? Like how introverted or extroverted are they? how do they approach challenge? Right. Because again, like you have some people that will go straight into it and they're very aggressive from a challenge perspective. And you have some people that shy away from it. Right. How do people prefer, you know, feedback and how do they, how do they actually manage and, and, uh, perceive outcomes, right? Are, are they going to, going to be more outcome driven and be very empirical and just look at what the actual results are? Or are they going to be very process oriented and look at, you know, what the day-to-day -day sessions look like and how much they enjoy that experience day over day over day. Right. Cause you know, after you've trained a certain amount of people, you realize really quickly that there's some people that will just come in and do all the things, whatever's on the sheet, as long as they keep seeing numerical progress or empirical progress. And then you'll have some people that as soon as they have a bad experience, never come back. It doesn't matter if they're making progress or not. And understanding who these people are very early on, ideally through the assessment and consultation perspective, allows you then to communicate and express and even build your training model out to them in a way that starts making sense for long-term development. And I like how you mentioned that too, because uh, being in the collegiate sector, you get to see like you're, you're not going to individualize in the sense of per program, you know, like uh, there, there are some days where we had a hundred athletes in the gym at one time, you're not going to have a hundred different individual programs, but what you can do, like you said, is one, just have as simple as it is, like it, what you and I are talking is like talking to your clients and like talking to your athletes, you know, like how simple that is, but like how little it's done in the most part, rather than like preaching to them, but having a conversation one-on-one, -on -one, cause you're totally right there. There are athletes that it's like, you put five rep max on the, whatever it is, like you want to hit a rep max and they are like grinning from ear to ear. They get to like, okay, I get to push myself on that aspect of it. And there's other people that they do not care at all about that. Like they, they, they don't care about that, that metric piece that you mentioned, or that we have some athletes that are very intrinsic, intrinsically like motivated and they, they love like the isometric holds and trying to give them pieces and like push them in the way that, like you said, that they, where we can get the intense out of them, we can get the work that they want to get done and push them towards what they want to do through their own like motivational factors. So it's not like you're trying to, and one as a coach, I think it's draining. I, and because I've been there before, like I've been there early on, early on in my young career as it is, but early on where I would just post the thing and like try to motivate everybody to do what I wanted them to do. Like you said, rather than it's so much easier when you get them to connect to the workout, connect to what we're doing mm -hmm. and give them each a like slice of the pie and direct them in their own. Like, this is your workout. This is what you can get out of it for the intrinsic, intrinsically motivated people. We're going to hold the ISOs. We're going to push that for the people that love the like metrics and we're going to push it. We're going to have some jump max. We're going to do some rep max there for the athletes. that just want to athlete. Like we're going to do movement stuff and we're going to like play games with you, you know, like, and all of that is a piece of the puzzle. And we want you, I want everybody to taste every piece of it, but not force, uh, 
excellently motivated, like I would just want to rip hex bar deadlifts into an ISO and just have them do ISOs the entire time. Like I would lose that person instantly. And then you have, if it's a locker room, you're going to have that cancer in the locker room because they're going to hate it because you as a coach haven't bought into that athlete in what they're doing. Of course, they're not going to buy into what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's even like you have way more experience probably from a, but not probably what you do from a team training perspective than I do. And, and, and that's always like, that is difficult, right? When you've got a group of 10 people or, or, or hundreds of people coming through on a daily basis, it's like you have all kinds of different personality types, all kinds of different, you know, biases and, and training ages. And like, even thinking back to my, my college career is like our best players hated the weight room. <laughs> Right. Like, and it's like, so if I'm a strength coach, like I'm just talking to them, it's like everything has to be validated by their performance on a court or a field or a track or whatever it is. Right. It's, they don't care about a one RM if it doesn't make them a better athlete or performer of their sport. And then you have some people that are like, they want to see those numbers go up just like everything else. And they almost kind of categorize it separately from the sport itself. Right. And it's like, you'll get some people that they just, they become better, you know, weight room warriors and, and worse athletes, you know, over the course of the, cause they end up kind of reprioritizing what they're doing and understanding who's going to be, who is going to be a huge driver in, and what experience you set up for people. And even like, um, cause all we, like my business right now is a hundred percent remote, right? So I can't be in there with them. I can't motivate them all the time, uh, in person. So I have to set up programs that, you know, have some, some psychological or, or biomechanical constraints based on the, the actual exercise selections and, and the programming that I'm doing when I'm laying out, you know, microcycles and, and mesocycles. And that allows me then, like, I've become a much better trainer from that perspective, probably X's and O's, but I have to really understand from, from a personality perspective really early on, like, is this somebody that I'm going to have to continuously, you know, tap the brakes on, or am I going to have to push the gas? Right. Because if I'm looking at, cause we do a lot of subjective scoring as far as like how we're going to look at like progression models. Right. So we'll look at, we'll look at their numbers week over week over week, but we'll also look at like, we'll give them an RPE, you know, ideal, and then we'll get their actual RPE based on their their experience. And if I'm, if I'm programming things out and I want RPE eight, but you know, they're, they progress their numbers, but they're calling it a nine. Well, I have to know what I'm going to do from that. Like who that person is like, is this someone who's overshooting or undershooting historically, right? Am I going to progress them or are I going to have them hold steady in this particular exercise? And I have to know their tendencies. As I go into that thought process too, because I'm going to have some people that they'll label it a nine all day long. And I'll watch videos. And I'm like, that was a six. Like there's, <laughs> you didn't even decelerate through your last rep. Uh, you know, you, you know, and, and again, it's like, that's not to tell them their experience isn't important, but their perception of what that is or what that effort level is might be a little skewed based on their actual potential. Right. And if I really want to get the most out of them, I have to know who I'm working with from that perspective. And, and that's going to be the same thing when you're in person, you just have the ability to communicate with them directly as they're doing it in real time. And, and that's again, I have to look at things a little more proactively than retroactively where you can be in the moment 
you know, as an in-person coach. So it's just, it ends up being kind of two different environments with two different expectations. Yeah. And in our world, it's much more the opposite, uh, Jim bro that just hit a RP 12 and told me it was a six. So it's like, yeah, it, bro, we got to back off on that. That was not a six yeah, RP. So that, that's the breaks. That's the breaks person, right? Where you're just like, and, uh, so I want to, I want to branch off in that regard, just, uh, between the, cause earlier you mentioned the difference between how you, you wanted to work with athletes and that's what you have known just based off your own background and then starting to work with non-athlete, non-athletes in quotations. Um, what is the difference there and how do you approach working with the two populations without treating? Cause this is what I see a lot is like they'll treat, uh, non-athlete just because they don't play a sport they'll treat them like they're fragile like you said like the mm -hmm. human button they're like having to do some like a booty band workout and then like um two sets of 10 something and then they'll get them out of the gym and like that that's they treat them like they're fragile and then they start to become fragile and they mm -hmm. become even less like athletic how do you treat it in a sense of like respecting the human body and what it's capable of and pushing uh, a non-athlete uh i'm trying to find a better word for that but they don't play a sport how, how do you go about pushing a client like that rather than treating it and what's the difference between treating it with a with an athlete that has a a field goal yeah it, so so for me that's we categorize those typically as our as our sorry my phone, <laughs> as our performance based people versus our like more general population people so when i'm looking at that you know those two categories are not indicative at all of effort in training or intensity or volume, right? I'm really looking at our performance-based people have specificity-based goals typically. And they typically have more urgency within their goals, which is gonna, which is going to impact everything from training frequency to the, the way you're actually programming and progressing them through, right? So if I'm looking at kind of like even a concurrent model where I might be using a block, an underlying block system, right? Where I've got like an accumulation to intensification to realization type phase, right? Or phase selection. If I'm working with the general population client, I might be cutting out some of those blocks. Like I might not be getting into, you know, singles, doubles and triples or like super high intensity, like one RM percentages, but that doesn't mean they're not working hard. They're still working at high RPEs and I can still drive a ton of volume if I'm looking at things like just hypertrophy and adding mechanic, mechanical tension and, and wor increasing work capacity, whatever it may be from that perspective. So our performance-based people, it's just specificity-based goals. And, and that specificity will lead to more specific training, right? So we might have exercise selections that might be specific to that goal or might be more optimal for, for whatever outcomes or adaptations we're trying to elicit for that person, right? Um, but really, I mean, everybody works hard, you know, and I think that's, that's probably a mistake that I've made, you know, in the past where, it's, you know, especially as you go through all those systems that, that are truly like corrective exercise systems, you know, in quotes, is you end up, you know, you see a lot of people in the gen pop realm just get detrained. Right. And it's like somebody comes in and they've got like a standard weight loss goal, or they just want to get a little bit more fit or they want to get healthy. And then they go through an assessment and they get, they have all these like asymmetries. They never ever knew they had or, or were aware of, or they, you know, had any pain with. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got somebody who wants to lose 30 pounds spending 30 minutes on the ground, you know, three hours a week, you know, and it's, they're not getting anywhere. They're just getting frustrated with the process. They're not getting any kind of stress within their, their actual training. So there's no adaptation happening. Right. So I, I think that's where I'm looking at, like, I'm going to treat those people, <sighs> you know, very similar though, those, those, those two groups from an overall effort perspective, the effort is just going to be driven in different lines where I don't have to be as rigid with a gen pop person in my exercise selection and the specificity of my programming. I can let them, 
you know, I can give them a little bit more autonomy in what we want to do based on their wants, right? Because I have less needs. I don't have as much, you know, criteria or, or task demands, you know, coming into an actual program. Whereas if I'm working with, you know, a basketball player, I've got a very, you know, a fairly specific set of task demands, you know, coming in. It's like this person has to be able to, you know, again, sprint, jump, be elastic, change directions. Like there's a lot of things from just a physical or physiological perspective that I need to make sure that they have. And I need to understand what their limiters are when I go into a training program. Right. And when I work with, you know, uh, an accountant who trains two, three times a week, right. Their lifestyle demands are going to be very different than that athlete's sport demands. Right. So now I'm looking at all right, you know, it's a it's a much more holistic, well-rounded program where you don't need a ton of specificity, right? I can be more variable in my programming. I can give you more of what you want, but we're probably going to be driving different qualities. And and I think that's where a lot of you know more more coaches and or coaches more in the gym pop realm, rather than backing off or changing exercise selection and, and task identification they just lower intensity and volume to the point where people aren't actually training, right? Because just accommodation principles, right? Like you need stress to adapt, like nothing, like homeostasis is going to rule out, right? We're, we're, we are built on energy conservation. And if, if you're not actually in an environment that stresses you, you'll never adapt. Like no, no adaptation will be elicited simply because it's a huge amount of energy expenditure on our system, right? So your body won't do it. So we need not only intense exposures, but more and more and more exposures to yield the same return over time. Right. And that's just linear progression and graded exposure, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I think that's where a lot of people come into that realm where they need to lose weight or they need to get stronger and they end up doing nothing that's going to lead to any, either one of those goals. Right. But maybe they've got some bands, maybe they spent some time SMRing or doing respiration based drills or some, some really light aerobic work but it's nothing that's actually going to stress the system enough to lead to the adaptations that they, that they're looking for from a training perspective. Well, and I love that, like the way that you laid that out too, because we work with uh, a lot of general population clients on our, uh, on our insider that we built out. And mm -hmm. it's funny working with them every time, like it's almost it's anytime you get somebody through like a full nine to 12 week, like program setup. every almost, they almost all say, wow, that was magic. Wow. That was crazy. And it's like, no, it's just the first time you're like, you've trained, you know, like, and that's all it is. You know, like I, I just look at some of this stuff and the first couple of times, like I went through, I was like, oh my God, yeah, my program's like magic. It is crazy. It is. I'm like, and I start looking and I'm like, wait a minute. No, like I just talked to you. I learned about your background and you just had no, like your training sucks before. It was nothing real. Like you said, you were doing that. You were doing just rolling out and then maybe hitting some arms and maybe hopping on a treadmill for 10 minutes, which again, all of those things alone aren't like bad, but like, if that's your encapsulated training program, that's all you're doing. Like anything better than that is going to level your system up and you're going to feel amazing. And it will feel like magic. If it's your first time doing it. I remember like my first time getting on a real training program, it felt like magic. I'm like, wow, gains, gains, gains. This is awesome. But it, with the general population, I just feel like, and not that it's untapped resource in the way that like, you want to think about people like resources, but it's like the way a lot of general population trains is is really bad. And they, they are craving something more, you know, they're craving that progressive over overload that you mentioned. And I feel like when you look at a lot of trainers, just look at the general population as like a weaker, like, you know, like, like a softer, but it's not, it's like, that's your own perception of that. Like they want to train hard. They want to get after it and their bodies want to do it too. Like it's the same human body just with different goals. Like you mentioned. Yeah. And that's man, what you just laid out is, 
is truly one of the most disappointing things that I've encountered in the industry, right? Where you have somebody come in and, you know, again, if you're thinking general population, if somebody's investing in training, it's probably because they need to be trained, right? Like they had some kind of emotional response in their life where they're like, wow, like I need to get my ass in gear. Like it's time. Like I'm ready to go. I'm excited about it. And not only are they, you know, brave enough to go into an environment they're not necessarily comfortable again, because again, we're inferring that they don't spend a lot of time in the gym. So just stepping into the gym for a lot of these people is a huge win, right? And not only that, but they're also willing to spend thousands of dollars on coaching, right? So they're, they're, they're literally like, they're trying to put skin into the game, right? That that's investment, right? They're putting time and money into the process of getting fit, right? They're not just going to half acid and YouTube or watch TV, you know, or try to watch things off videos. And they're excited. They go into that assessment and all of a sudden they've got a coach that takes them through like a movement screen and a consultation and says, Hey, you're really fucked up. You're a seven on the FMS with three asymmetries. We can't do X, Y, Z, A, B, C, one, two, three. And we have to start you at this super low point. Like, man, that's crushing for people. Right. You just took, you just took their, their balloon of, you know, enjoyment, excitement, and just like popped it right in front of them. Right. And, and I think that's one of the biggest things for me that just really just bothers me in that realm, right. Where it is like kind of what we said at the very beginning, like you're treating people like they're, they're glass, right. Like they're fragile. You're giving them kind of no civic language. Like they're, they're limited in some way when the reality of it is, is a coach, like you just have to know where to start them because they are at such a low point they're going to experience, you know, the, the newbie gains from almost anything because they have so little like actual stimulus in their lives. Right. You know, it's like, those are the people where you just need to get them moving. And if, if you're a coach and you can't look at an assessment score or look at, you know, table testing or whatever, however you're, however you're measuring, you know, their movement and you can't find exercise selections and constraints that allow them to train with some level of effort, even if it's just machine circuits, early on to build up a foundation, like you're kind of shitty, like you're probably just not that good a coach. Right. And, and I think that's the hardest thing. Like most people, like, again, like even looking at like mobility, right. And, and everybody's obsession with like having perfect biomechanics and having a neutral pelvis and, and all of this and hip flexor length and, and whatever, like what you're seeing from a postural perspective, like that's just the body strategy to hold somebody up in space. Right. And if we're, if we're looking at like muscle tension and hypertonicity, like, again, like that's just a muscular or a neuromuscular, you know, response to skeletal position and, and whatnot. And, and typically, you know, more so than like mobility issues, like if you put those people into passive range of motion testing or table testing, like they're, they're not too bad. It's usually a strength deficit more so than anything else. Right. And if you can get that person stronger and help them, uh, again, be more resistant to force, even if that force is just gravity, let alone loading, you're probably going to fix a lot of things over time. Right. And it's going to be a much easier process. And we spend so much time and probably waste so much time with people doing these passive interventions on the floor where it's like, we're taking gravity out of the picture. Like what's a floor-based exercise. Like that's saying like, man, you can't even stand up. I'm going to lay you on the ground so you don't have to deal with your body weight anymore. Right. And it's just like, that's, that's not a stimulus. that's actually going to quote unquote, you know, air quotes, correct anything. Right. Because if we need, if we do have a movement compensation or compensatory strategy that's happening under stress, 
well, our quote unquote corrective intervention needs to be of equal magnitude or greater stimulus to actually have an impact or an effect, right? On that strategy, right? If you want to change a strategy, it has to be a stronger stimulus than what's already happening or the body won't adapt. Right. And I think coming at people with like super low level sensorial things might be okay really early on to build just awareness within somebody's body, but man, you need to get them moving and you need to get them moving under some kind of subjective load as early as possible. And that might be something like ISOs that might be machines, but they need to start like getting effort in, in a controlled manner, like really early on in the process. And give them a victory. Like you said, like, well, there's no reason to bring them in and pop their blue. And like, if you can give anybody, most people, like even athletes themselves, if you give them a victory and a taste of that and a taste of, Mm -hmm. oh, my body can do that. Like I have never once seen that go wrong. I've never once seen you, you see an athlete and there are other, yes, there, there are maybe not that they're wrong, but things that like are less than ideal in the way they move the less than like, and that's why they're coming to you. Like they're coming to you because maybe they have a hamstring, maybe they're overweight. So it's less than ideal in the way that they want to be. And I don't want to ever say it's wrong in the quotations, but give them a victory, show them what their body can do. And I've never once seen that backfire. I've never once seen that go into the wrong direction. It's always, Oh my goodness. Like I am capable of that. What else am I capable of? And then that's where you hook them for the long term to really push for what they are capable of. Uh, really push for, and that's why I really like doing a lot of the gymnastics stuff that we do in our gym is for the simple fact of like, they couldn't do it before and now they can do it. And it's something mm-hmm. simple that it's, you can do within the first week of them, like getting that point. And now it's like, okay, what else can I do? What else can I do? How else can I chase this? Yeah. I think that's, that's huge. Right. And again, like collecting those wins is incredibly motivating for people, you know, and you know, one of the other trends that I see all the time is like the whole, like, you know, discipline over motivation, you know, trend where everybody, and and again, like I have friends who say this all the time and I get it coming from the lens of like you or myself, right? People with extremely high training ages, right? Like, yeah, like I didn't want to get up at four o'clock and go train this morning, but I'm disciplined enough that I did. Awesome. Like I get that. I also know that I'm a complete weirdo, right? Compared to the normal population. Like anyone who works within this industry, when we look at just the the population in America is an extreme outlier, right? And as coaches, we have to understand that. And we have to understand that and pretty much in every psychological study ever been, that's ever been conducted on, on motivation theory, motivation precedes discipline every single time. Right. People don't just become disciplined out of the blue and they certainly don't become disciplined to things that are hard out of the blue. Right. The motivation to discipline continuum is really the dopaminergic cycle. Right. Where it's hedonic to start. Right. And it's very pleasure based to start. And then it becomes more disciplined over time. Right. After enough positive outcomes and enough habit formation. And you know, it, working with, you know, general population and even working with athletes, like giving them wins and building motivation early on is pretty much like, it's a prerequisite for most people becoming disciplined later on in life. And, and the problem with a lot of coaches is the time, like when we go back to what our motivating factors were, they were just so long ago. Like how long have you played sports since when? Since five years old. Yeah. yeah. Like, right. Right. Like, so the first time, like you're winning, you were getting your little trophies and your medals and all this stuff from like eight, nine, 10, middle school, high school, college. Right. We've had the motivation the entire time. We just had it much earlier in life when we're working with general population clients who have never been active. Like they've never had motivation to be active. They've never been chasing 
medals and trophies and, and accolades and things of that nature, right? We have to provide those things for them. We have to provide the wins as coaches early on in that process so that they can become disciplined later on in the process. And I think that's, that's a huge thing. A lot of us miss within our own experiences because I'm the same way. It's like, when I was 10 years old, I had a trophy shelf right over my bed with all my, you know, spray painted gold plastic medals, right. That every, that everybody had. And I would literally just sit on my bed and stare at them and want to add to like, that was my, that was my motivation. And I've been motivated since then. And now I'm disciplined because that's just who I am as a human being, right. I'm, I'm just an active person. I don't know how to be an active and, and that's fine, but I, I have to understand that that's not who my clients are for the most part, if I'm in a gen pop realm and I have to cultivate that. And that's part of my job, you know, whether I like it or not, if I want people to train with high frequency and high adherence to programming and then coherence outside of the programming from a lifestyle perspective. That is probably one of my favorite rants that I've had on this podcast. Cause it's something that I've been like talking about over and over and over again, is that the piece where we, we, we don't understand that. And this is all meatheads. And this is one of the biggest changing points in my own coaching career is like, why do I like lifting? Because the first time I walked in the weight room, I was good at it. I was a big framed guy. I walked in and everybody told me, oh my God, you can be good at it. The dopamine spike from that, you know, like the motivation, everything in me was like, oh my God, like you are the man in this moment. You know, like that, that's why I enjoy it. Things that I'm not good at, like I don't enjoy. And now you, you flip that on its head too. Like you said, even, even if it is an athlete and not as good athlete or an athlete that let's say he's a faster athlete, he's really good on the field and not good in the weight room. It's like, no duh. Like he doesn't like it. Like he's never been rewarded, but he is rewarded for it on the field and making that, I think it's a huge part in like most people's coaching career that they need to make is knowing your own self. Like, why do you value these things? Why, why are you motivated by these things? Cause like I, I'm, I'm probably too much against the discipline and the hashtag grind motivation. Like I get there's, that is helpful for some people, but I'm like, to me, it's like, man, this, it's such a dumb argument. It's like, it's not the grind because you enjoy it. You know, like we enjoy lifting to me. That's not the grind. It's just doing something we like doing. It's like another person that likes accounting. Like for us, that would be the grind. If we had to go and type in a bunch of numbers and do the grind in that aspect, I would consider that the grind, but for the accountant, that's not, it's what they enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. It gets their brain rolling. It makes, it gives them a reward system of somebody selling them. They're good at it. But to me, it's like, we miss kind of the, how we are trained as humans. And I'm not saying like you break out of the trained aspect, like you're always going to have that. It's always going to be like the foundation in your brain and how it's wired, but just understand and see it. Like you aren't grinding. That That is another, like we have a young intern. Um, he's a huge powerlifting guy, like deadlift 700 pounds. And he always like, he's like, oh, you need to get after this guy. You need to get after this guy. It's like, God, he's not you. Like he, he's not you. And I love, I love your motivation. I love your energy. I love how yeah. you're doing it, but he's not you. You will lose that kid. If you yell at him, like the way that you yell at one of your training partners, like mm-hmm. it, it's, it's not the same setup. I, I love the way that you laid that out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I like what you just said, especially like, it's all subjective. Right. And and again, that's part of like, you, you want to understand, you know, what motivates something and and, and how that relates to their outcomes. And it's funny, like we always talk about this and people are like, well, how do you know what they like? It's like, you fucking ask them. (laughs) Like, like it's, it's the most common sense thing in the world. And this people in this industry are so obsessed with being experts that they never ask their clients what they actually like to do. And they just make them do what they like to do or what they view as important. Right. And it's just like, like, man, we're, we're missing the forest through the trees on so many aspects, right. Where it's just like, you ask them, that's part of the intake process. You literally ask them what their goal selection is. And then you ask them, you know, why that's their goal selection. Right. 
and, and, and what they actually like to do in a gym. Like, have they been in a gym? What's their experience? What are the things they enjoy doing? What are the things they don't enjoy doing? And if you can't avoid the things they don't enjoy doing, again, like you're probably not actually, you're looking at probably exercises and not adaptations, right? You're probably missing the point of the exercise and just looking at it as this thing uh, that, that people generally have to do. And I think that's, that's a huge red flag. You know, when I, when I'm talking to coaches, it's like, Oh, like you need, you probably need to spend more time with people that aren't in the gym. Right. And again, like this is, this is where like when you've been in enough gyms, you also realize that, you know, coaches are oftentimes like a, we're very isolated in the field, right? Because this field takes a long, a lot of hours to be successful within. Like there's, there's a lot of time on the floor and a lot of time in education. And you, you combine that with people who are typically highly biased going into it. And you get people who become obsessive over the training industry. Right. And it's like, we talk to people all the time. It's like, cool. Like, what do you do? Like, Oh, I'm a trainer. It's like, you know, I, I work like 50, 60 hours a week in a gym. Right. And like, Oh, what do you do for fun? Like oh, I work out. And like, oh, okay. So you're, you're a trainer who works in a gym and you work out for fun. Cool. Like, like who do you hang out with? Like outside of the gym? Like, Oh, the other coaches, they're my friends. You're like, oh, okay. Uh, so you're a trainer who works in a gym 60 hours a week and you work out for fun. And then outside of the gym, you hang out with the other coaches who, you know, in the gym as your social circle. It's like, man, like that's not a well-rounded human being, right? Like that's not somebody who's probably interacting, uh, at least socially, like professionally, they, they talk to their clients or whatever, but they're probably not interacting socially with a lot of people in the real world. And because of that, like we get really wrapped up and siloed into this kind of false sense of importance, right? And, you know, the, the industry itself is, it is important. Like I never want to downplay the industry because I've benefited greatly from the industry and I love what I do. But at the same time, it's also a lot of very arbitrary things. Like when you get to it at an acute level, like we said, like sets, reps, stimulus, like whatever, all these things are incredibly subjective and we can manipulate these things a lot of different ways to produce outcomes, right? Like I, like if I've got, you know, Susan, the soccer mom who trains three times a week, like I don't need Bomba's periodization schedule that he wrote for like juiced up Soviets, you know, in the, in the eighties, right? Like it's, we can probably just come in and have a good time, work hard at what we're doing, right? Again, not fluff stuff, but like we can work hard three, you know, three, four times a week. And, and I can work on, you know, having you do all the things outside of the gym that are going to help contribute to, to what you're doing. But man, I'm not, I don't have to do a bunch of shit you don't like. Like it, it's simply, it's that easy. Like we can pick things you like to do and drive high levels of effort within those things and get results. There's no one way I need to be able to do things from that perspective. I, I think leaving the gym is like the number, one of the number one things like our, our field needs to be required to do. I, I talk about how COVID, the, and not in the global stuff, not in the like illness sense, but how the pandemic was one of the best things that could have happened to 99% of coaches because it forced them to get out of the gym, you know? And it, for me, it was, it was one of the biggest, biggest changes in my own coaching career, just because it, it forced me to implement some of the ideas I've been talking about. It forced me to look up ideas that like, I, I'm not looking about ideas in the gym because I'm not going to be, I'm not, I don't have access. We didn't have access to a gym for, I think it was like eight months. So I, was, I wasn't going to read about the gym. I was going to read about other parts of uh, psychology i was going to read uh philosophy theology you know like a ton of different fields and just applying and then i'm going to go talk to people that again are not your, your buddies and the the college sector is horrible because college sector you're legit locked in not locked but i mean you're locked in an office with you and probably yeah. two or three other coaches 
uh, that you probably hired or you had a say in hiring. So it's like mm-hmm. you're hiring your mini me's. You're sitting in this room pumping back ideas that you're like, yeah, that's a good idea. It's like, yeah, it is a good idea. And you're just bumping yeah. back the same crap. And you got your athletes like living real life. Like it, that, and that, that's yeah. another thing. It's like I watched it. It was like we talk about these things. We talk about these things. I read some of this stuff. I'm like my athletes living in real life. Like they, they don't care about any of this, you know, like they don't care about what we're saying. They don't even notice what you're talking about. And I'm not saying that you eliminate all small details. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we get so stuck in like our own thoughts and beliefs and repetition. And then it works with a couple of our athletes who are also probably going to end up being coaches. And we just confirm like, okay, yep. Those are my workhorses. Those are the guys that take it serious and get the results. All these other guys are just lazy during our program. And that's why it's not working. Oh yeah. And when the, the real world, ver- like the, the real world, the gin pop version of that is the coaches that have to fire half their clients or don't retain <laughs> clients because they're not disciplined or they're not serious enough. And it's like, nah, you just picked a bunch of shit that they didn't like and provided a bad experience. Like that person came in to spend money with you. Like they're, they had skin in the game and you drove them away right? Because you were too rigid or, or you weren't flexible enough in, in how you implemented training and you didn't understand what their expectations of the training was, right? And because expectations also drive perception, right? It's like outcomes don't actually drive perception. The expectations drive perception, right? Like you can have two different people who, whether it's a strength aspect or like a weight loss aspect or whatever, like you might have somebody who bench presses 225, and is incredibly disappointed with that because again, their, their expectation was 275, right? And you might have somebody who bench presses 225 and their expectation is 185 and they're ecstatic about it, right? So it's not, it's not the actual outcome. It's never the thing. It's the expectation of the thing going into the process. And it could, you could say the same thing with like a 30 pound weight loss goal for somebody who really wanted to lose 60 in that time frame versus someone who wanted to lose 20 in that time frame and went above and beyond, right? It's like it's 30 pounds. Doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's very empirical. It's a number. If I'm just measuring progress, these people came out at the same level, right. But they had very different expectations going into that process. And that's going to, that's going to drive the perception of the experience as a whole and whether or not they continue training, right. With you or just in general. Right. And I think that's something that coaches need to understand as well Is we go through this process and the subjective matters because people aren't rational. They're emotional. Like the majority of people that we meet, like rationally is a great way to kind of look back on things. Right. But in the moment we make emotional decisions, like we're emotional organisms, you know? And I think that's like, we're like, especially under stress, we are highly amygdala driven. Like our PFC shuts down, right? Like our cortex is like, Nope, see you later. Like run from the lion. Like we're done. Right. You know? So it's like, we're highly emotional. And we're not necessarily making rational decisions. We're not planning. We're not, we're not being introspective about decisions that we've made. We're just trying to get to the next thing. Uh, and we have to understand that our, our clients are going to be like that within most training sessions. And we have to be able to like cater to that in some way, the majority of times. And do you, do you ever, you know, on the other end of that, do you ever reach a point to where like a client is just not a good fit or it's, I mean, it's both ways where it, maybe it's like, you just have to tell them like what we're doing isn't going to work with you. Like, how, how do you, how do you bridge that approach? Is there ever like a client that it's like, it, it, it's not going to work? Yeah. I mean, I mean, so first and foremost, I, you know, that's usually an intake issue. Right. And, and I think again, like hindsight's twenty twenty, but I think those are usually people that there are probably some red flags on day one. Right. And, and we just overlook them because, you know, as coaches, it's like maybe we needed a new client to fill in a gap or, or maybe we just 
we really wanted to help this person because we, we empathize to what their goals were. Right. But, uh, but maybe like from a personality perspective or their availability to train or even like their commute to get to the gym leads to like a lot of missed sessions or whatever. Like we knew there were obstacles in the way that we might not have direct control over. Right. Um, and then, you know, two months down the road, six months down the road, a year down the road, we're probably both upset or disappointed with how the experience is going you know, both as a coach and a client and, and bridging that conversation. I'm usually, I usually just try to be as authentic and straightforward with it as possible. And just saying like, Hey, I don't think we're a great fit. I don't think I'm the right fit for you as a coach, or maybe our facility is not the right fit for what you want to do, but I do have some recommendations for you for peers in the field or peers in the area that I think would be a better fit for you to help you get where you want to go. And I think, again, it's not, it's not one of those like, Hey, it's not you. It's me conversations. It's more so just like, I do care that you get to your goals. And I understand that you've invested a lot of time in them. And I can also be responsible enough to say that I'm probably not the right person for that after a few months of training or whatever it's been. But I do know some people that I think would be, and I have no problem making introductions or getting you set up with them. I love that conversation. I think part of it comes back to knowing yourself as a coach too, and knowing what you, what you're going about, not that you can't adapt it, but there are people. And I think that day one conversation is important too. It's like actually have that day one conversation and be like, is this going to be, is this going to work? Is this going to be a good fit? Is it going to, are we going to both like mutually push each other? Cause that's something that I view too. It's like to me and maybe I view it too much and maybe it sounds selfish, but it's like, it, it is a mutual like relationship. Like I do not oh, want to go sure. to a session to where I'm, I'm training. Like I feel drained. So like I, I won't do it. Cause I know like I'm being drained. And then if I'm being drained, I'm going to drain you back. You know, it's just going to be the mutual, like we're just not going to fit in that regard. So to where like setting it up, having that day one conversation and not that we've had it a ton. And again, our training, my training age and gym age is way younger than yours. So I'm sure you see it a lot more than me, but it's, okay, that, that, that really isn't going to work. And, and we're both going to drain each other. But like you said, like not shutting that down. Cause that's where I see it's like, there's, a, there's some young strength coaches where it's like, it was the client's fault. And like you said, like the fire in the client and what you do then is like, they're never going to get the fitness goal. You know, like they're going to be so yeah. turned off from our field that uh, they're it, done it's with gonna, it. it's going to be bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other way it just, it cycles through like this kind of confirmation, like survivorship bias where people are like, Oh, all my clients love me that still train with them. like yeah like no shit they, they're <laughs> okay, actually the people yeah. who like who who still like match your style or they fit your archetype or whatever or their niche which is cool like having a niche in the industry isn't a bad thing as long as you don't market yourself to everything right and, and then when people don't necessarily fit that you know or, or whatever that is and and you push them away or they push them or they they tend to leave it, you're not just throwing them under the buses and being, you know, not self-aware enough to realize that you might be a bigger part of that problem than they were, you know, as a coach. And I think that's, that's important because you see that all the time where it's like, like that's a selection error or an intake error. And, you know, it's very easy because again, like going back to the earlier conversation, when people actually come into the gym and they sign up for training, man, that's the most excited they'll ever be. Like that day is like from that point up, up to that point, that's the most excited they've ever been about training. Like down the road, hopefully as you collect wins, they get even more excited about it. But if they're ready to hand over a couple thousand dollars sight unseen to somebody to train them, like they're bought in, they're mm -hmm. ready to make that decision. And it's really easy for coaches at that point to not have the hard conversations and just sign them up, right? Or get them going and say, oh, you're pumped. Like, hey, we seem to be vibing because you're, you're in a good mood and you're excited about it. I love that. A month later, when they're having a hard time getting there, 
or maybe they're not hitting their goals as fast as, you know, they thought they were going to. Again, if you didn't get those those expectations early on and have a conversation about whether or not those things were realistic and what they needed to be doing, what they were going to be accountable to be doing, you know, both in the gym and outside of the gym early on, you're going to be in for a rocky road, right? And again, like part of the, I think trainers take a lot of things for granted, especially maybe even in the athletic realm where a lot of people think, you know, they can just walk into a gym and do a few things. And over time, the magic's going to happen. And it's like, we know better. It's like, no, you got to come in and, you know, work really hard, (laughs) you know, inside the gym, you can't just show up and go through the motions. That's not how it gets done. That might get some things done early on and give you some, you know, uh, initial rewards, but you're going to plateau out of that really quickly because it's, it's hard to progress low effort, right? Like over time, like you got to be able to like keep continuing and keep grading that out. Um, and if, and if people think, you know, their expectation is just like, oh, I just need to show up. I'm going to lose this weight or I'm going to put four inches on my vertical or, or what I'm going to become a better soccer player, whatever it is. If they don't understand like the effort and the commitment that's going to go into that really early on in the process, you're going to be the one that gets thrown under the bus at the end of it as a coach. And with that high intensity talk that you mentioned in the high effort, one last question I want to ask you before we get into the rapid fire round is the operation meat rocket. Uh, what, what, what is a meat rocket? What, what does, uh, what does that entail and how, how do we kind of become one and what, what, what are you trying to do with operation meat rocket? Yeah. So it's, it's funny, man, cause it, it's really just, it was my goals kind of just put into like a program, you know, for, for, for people who, you know, had similar goals. And I, I think for me as like a former track athlete and somebody that just like loves like hypertrophy pump sessions, you know, at the gym, like nothing more than that. It's just finding a, a model where we can kind of get both things accomplished and and saying like, Hey, we, we can run a concurrent program where we've got high STEM days. We've got moderate STEM, you know, mechanical or hypertrophy days. And then we've got various STEM conditioning days, right. And we can have, we can sprint, we can jump and we can still do leg extensions and shit like that and be okay with it. Right. It's not gonna, there's no interference effect that's taking place there. That's not going to decrease our athleticism. Uh, We might not be like elite marathon runners because that's very specific, but we can still run and be athletic and want to get jacked. And I think that's, that's a big thing. And like you mentioned Jake earlier, like Jake's somebody I've talked to a lot about this and like Tim Riley, uh, who I believe, you know, too, he was on the meat rocket program for, for a little bit. He was our, he was our unofficial, unofficial mascot. I think he was the heaviest meat rocket at one point. So I was like, I was like, you're, you are the meat rocket. You surpassed me as the, as the meat rocket here. Uh, but yeah, it's just like, you know, the, the other thing that we talk about in the, in the threads all the time is like on train heroic and stuff. It's like, it's jacked and fast. Like that's the goals. Like, you know, and it's just like, or thick and quick. Like that's what everybody on the program <laughs> says, quick, like, 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 throughout, like throughout the the threads. And it's like, that's, that's the environment that, that I kind of want to foster there where it's like, man, people just, people love lifting. People want to become more athletic. You don't have to sacrifice one to get to the other. And, and I think that's the, the biggest thing that I've tried to get out of it. And it's been super fun for me and, and working with the group, like we've had, I think we're right around like 250 people on the program right now. It's a, it's a pretty decent sized group, but it's just a good time. It's fun to watch people you know, post the videos and, and post their lifts. And we've, we're at, we've had all kinds of people like lit, like PR squats and deadlifts and bench, like on a, con, you know, on basically a conditioning program, you know, from that perspective. So it's like, you, we're seeing kind of the proof in the pudding with it as well, but 
you know, we phased out of, you know, accumulation phases and gone into like contrast and, and some triphasic work and kind of back into a little bit more volume stuff now and kind of let our, you know, our conditioning work cycle as well, as well and kind of work people through extensive to intensives to, to more sprint work and, and more like high output plyometrics. And um, it's fun to just watch people grow with it you know, and, and even kind of change their mentality with it. Cause I did have, we had some like definite like runners, like middle distance to long distance. Like our, like the first week, somebody literally asked on the forum, like, Hey, should I be doing bilateral squats or should I do like a single leg variation? I'm like, you're fine. Like <laughs> you could do that bilateral squat. You're going to be okay. Right. And it's just like, just talking about misconceptions there, but like, you're going to be okay. Like I, I understand like the significance of a single leg work for gait, but over the course of this micro cycle, like we're doing RFEs, FFEs and a bilateral variation. Like you're going to be okay. We're going to hit, we're going to hit the full propulsion arc and you're going to make, you're going to get all of it. You're going to get all the rotation from, from moral perspective. Don't worry about it. Uh, but this is your output session. So we're going bilateral and we're going to just pump it. Um, so it, it's fun to kind of watch that. It's fun to watch like the meatheads. Uh, you know, build their conditioning up a little bit. So they're not out of breath, you know, walking up the steps, which is always a good time. Um, but it's, it's been good. It's been super fun, but it's just, uh, it's a strength and conditioning program. We're on, I think phase nine now. So it's, it's been running nine months for the people who've been on it the whole time. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a ride. Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds a lot. We, we have a building better movers series and it's the same thing. It's like, and it's the magic of just giving like the human body what the human body where it wants, you know, rather than just pushing them straight into a triangle. It's like, yeah. all right, we can move, we can squat, we can lift a lot. We can jump a lot. We can sprint a lot. Like we can add all of these things. We can do some conditioning work, like you mentioned, like, and then how the human body responds to that is, is it's pretty cool. And that was something that you mentioned how looking at that single workout of, Oh, I got a bilateral squat today. Should I also add in lunch? It's like, just look, look at the whole picture, man. Like yeah. it's the whole program and yeah. we're adding all of this in, we're giving all the stimulus and your body's going to respond to all the stimulus. So yeah. I promise the, I promise the body will figure it out and you'll be just fine yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, and that's like, you know, my, my business partner and I, Matt, we, we talk about this all the time too. It's just like, you can do all the machine lifting or bilateral lifting or, you know, sagittalized lifting that you want, and you're not going to lose athleticism and, until you stop doing athletic things, right? Like people are like, they're like, Oh, if you, if you train like a bodybuilder, you're going to be a, a bodybuilder. And it's like, well, bodybuilders also don't, they, they don't run, they don't jump. Right. Like it's like you, you go to three practices a week and you, and you sprint and you run and you jump, you like, you're not going to lose those qualities just because you, you know, you did a leg press, like you're going to be okay. It's going to be fine. You know? And I think that's where like people just, they don't look at the big picture and they don't understand that like, again, adaptations don't happen over a singular session. Like it is going to be the the big picture as far as like, you're, you're looking at the full week and how you're dosing out stimulus through that. You're looking at a mesocycle of how you're progressing things week over week, over week, over week. And then you're looking at like macro cycles and, and kind of blocks as far as like long-term, you know, development for people. It's never just a singular session. Like, uh, I just, I literally this week just got a $10 membership to planet fitness. So I could go in and just do Saw that. <laughs> like just a machine circuit for like an hour. And I left with like the gnarliest pump ever, you know, you know, Wednesday morning, I just went through like a, a circuit of six extra, like six machines, like five times and ended up accumulating like 67,000 total pounds of volume on it. It just felt great. Like joints felt great. Got a good pump felt awesome. You know, and it's just like doing that once a week. Like I look forward to that now. Cause I haven't been in a gym in three or four years that had machines. 
like I not even a dual cable. Like I've had a lap pull down in the gym. I've been using and everything else is free weights. Right. So like, it was just a blast. Like I loved it. I was the youngest one in there by like 20 years. Uh, it was just like me and the silver sneakers crew. And we were just jamming out, you know, just crushing some weights. Had a great time. It was awesome. I love that. I love that. The operation meat rock. I like how you said it was the first time doing machines in like three years. Cause it was the same thing. I, I cut them out of my program for a while. Just out of necessity because my gym was like 400 square yeah, feet at the time a, and we had nothing else you know? and i went back to it and during the time i was very much in the athletic mindset i was like oh i'm not going to do machines like i don't care about looks that's everything i went back and i ripped some machines like oh my god i feel great like this is awesome yes. like i see why people are addicted to this but um let's get to the rapid fire rounds and i got two questions here that i want to ask you and the first one is some of your favorite books that you think the listeners can get a lot out of, and this can be psychological. This could be, uh, in the training world. This could be anything that you, uh, think the listeners can get a lot out of. It's interesting. Cause my, my book selections are always a little funky in the fact that like, I don't read training books anymore. Like I can't tell you the last time I read like a training specific book. Like I still go to seminars. I do con ed, uh, but I, I really have no interest in, you know, reading books on periodization or programming or, or biomechanics or whatever. Um, and, and I've really kind of gotten more into like just sociology, psychology. And then I read it like I read a ton of just like fiction, you know, and, and just looking like hero's journey based things. And I think there is a huge application to that from a training perspective as well. And that's something we, we talk about because we are the guides, right? Like our clients, like it's their hero's journey. Like they come to us with a problem or an obstacle and, and we help them drive them through it and through many obstacles and achieve wins and, and find new, new obstacles. And like, that's a big process from a training perspective. Um, I'm a huge, uh, you've all Harari fan, you know, so sapiens is really high up on my list. Um, the the story of the human body is good too again it, it sounds more probably physical and physiological but it's also very built on how sociology and our environments shaped our, our uh, biology as well um biocentrism is another book um, um i really enjoyed reading and again that's just looking at like how quantum physics like applies to like our environments on an everyday basis and how it influences us as human beings um from a, from a psychology perspective uh, as well, like um, A General Theory of Love is a fantastic book that I just think most human beings should read. Like um, my wife and I actually read it together and it's just phenomenal. I think it just made me a better person, parent, husband, et cetera. Um, how, are, how Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett is also fantastic and kind of just outlines um, how our prior experiences dictate our perception of, you know, future events and, and present events. Um, uh, anything that's, um, like Robert Sapolsky driven. So like, uh, how zebras, uh, why zebras don't get ulcers and then behave are two books that are always going to be high on my list as well for that. Just looking at autonomics and kind of the drivers of, of physiology and biology as well. Cause, and that just goes to, again, sets, reps, exercise selection, like none of that means anything if you don't understand how the body accommodates stress and adapts to it, you know? So, uh, homeostasis, allostasis, and the cost of physiological adaptation is another, is another book that I think a lot of coaches should probably read. And just looking at how the body tries to fight change as much as possible. And training is like, again, purposefully stressing the body to elicit a specific adaptation, understanding that process and what's going on, I think is, is huge as well. Um, those are definitely just a few off, off the top of my head, I think. And what are some of your, uh, I want to hear some of your heroes journeys books. Are you like a Harry Potter guy? Like what, what, what are your books? Uh, so it's funny. Like I never read Harry Potter as a kid. I, I was kind of in, 
I was in between, like I was kind of too old for it when they first all came out. Like I, I, I'm 39, so I'm, I'm, I'm on the older end. Right. But I just went through them with my kids. So that was awesome. So I got, I just read them with all with my kids. Um, I'm trying to like any of the, like, I read through all the game of Thrones. Like that was actually one of the first, uh, like genres I read. I've read through so many now I'm trying to think of names. Um, they're all kind of the same. Um, the Witcher series I've read through, enjoyed that one. Yeah. It's just like stuff that kind of takes me away from the, the fitness world where I just, you know, I think again, becoming like we become so siloed in, in this where it's like, and I've been like, I was the exemplification of that where it's like, I was in a gym. I only hung out with coaches. The only thing I did for fun was work out. Um, I, I can't spend all my time reading fitness stuff too, on top of all of that, you know, I get burnt out super quick and, and become really like kind of demotivated by, by it. So it's like now going through the process of just, uh, reading stuff that's different, you know, and, and things that completely take me out of that realm is just huge for me. Like even like, uh, like the Eric Sanderson stuff, like I read the majority of those. Um, so it's just, yeah, it's been a whole, a whole thing over the last really like two to three years where I've gone through like, I don't know, like nine, 10, 12 series. Cause I, I read a lot. That's what I usually do, uh, like before bed and stuff. So I usually get like an hour and a half before I fall asleep, you know, in, in the evening. So it's, it's, it definitely like helps me kind of get away from the industry a little bit, uh, which is I need for sure at this point in my life. Yeah. I'm the same. I'm a huge, uh, huge fiction nerd here, huge Harry Potter nerd specifically. I, lo- I love, I love that. Love that stuff. We're, we're actually, um, I'm setting up right now to go speak at a seminar in London in uh, I believe March of next year. And uh, I'm just going to take the family and make it like a five day trip. And we're going to go to Harry Potter land. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so uh, listen, I'll have like, a, we'll be in like full, like Quidditch outfits <laughs> by, by the end of it. So you'll, you'll enjoy seeing that. I'm sure. That's awesome. All right. And then final, final question of the podcast. And this is when all the coaching and mentorship is over, but what do you kind of want your legacy to be? Man, uh, honestly, for me, there's nothing more important in my life than being a good father. You know, I, I lost my father pretty young and I was blessed to have him for the time that I had him, but it's like my kids now are just a constant reminder to me just about how important that is. And I really try to, and especially over the last, since we moved back here, I've, I've made a very concerted effort to make sure that everything that I do is really wrapped around being able to spend as much time as I can with them. Right. It's like, whether it's my, I've scaled my business. So I basically work from like 10 to three. Um, I get up and train at, at four or five in the morning. So that by the time I get back, like I'm able to sit and eat breakfast with them and drink coffee with my wife and take them to school and, and drop or drop them off at the bus stop or whatever it is. I go to all the practices, whatever it is. Like my kids are very active. So we've got, I got one kid on two club soccer teams and a basketball team and swimming. I've got another kid that's doing swimming and track and, and, and like, uh, like computer programming clubs. And I just go to everything I can. Right. And, and it's just, I always want to be present in their lives with that. And, like, that's just huge for me. Like, that's the things that I enjoy the most uh, at this point in my life. Like my, my wife and I are very aligned on what we want our family to be. And uh, she's my biggest supporter as well. And so, so being able to be her best friend and her biggest supporter is big for me. The training stuff at the end of the day, like I want to make a difference in as many people's lives as I can and, and a positive impact. But at the same time, like that's just a very small part of who I am at, at this point. And, and I think it's, it's, 
it's taken a long time for me as a coach, like to, to, to identify as not a fitness person, right. Instead of like a person who does fitness, you know, and I think that that's something I really struggled with early on in my, you know, whether it was being an athlete early on and, and being injured. And, you know, I dealt with a, a ton of just anxiety and depression and, uh, like honestly substance abuse, like through my college career, because of a lot of those things and not being able to handle those things from a maturity perspective. And then being in the field and being successful in the field at a young age and really identifying myself through that, um, and kind of losing my way probably socially and kind of outside of work was a huge thing for me and a huge wake up call for me. Um, and now, yeah, like I've really come to peace, like <laughs> just being like, a dude that works out on the internet and, and kind of works with people and, and whatever, but like a father and a husband and being a better friend to whether it's like Matt, my business partner, like we're, he's one of my best friends at this point now, like being a better friend to him, the people that I meet in, in real life off the internet, you know, and, and whatever. And, um, that's definitely the, the big, the big part of it is just like really not being identified in this industry as like an industry person, but just a person who's does it, you know, on the side. And I feel like when you reach that point, that's when you can do kind of what you've done, you know, like you can't do that when you're so attached to yeah. the field itself. Yeah. It's like now, yeah. I mean, that's probably like the, the memes and stuff. It's just like, I try to have fun with it. You know, at this point it's like, I, they make me laugh. I'm definitely like one of those like dad joke guys who laughs at his own jokes. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully I try to put as much context into things as I possibly can. But the thing that I, I hope people understand and, and what I've said in the past is like, everything, every meme I've ever made, like I was that person at some point, right. In my, along my journey. And it's, it's just, again, it's like, we all want to be different, but I think at the same time, like we're all kind of caricatures of one another uh, as coaches. Like, yeah, I'm sure you see it too, where you're just like, you, you see people that two, three years behind you and you're just like, Oh, I remember that I was there. Like, good luck with it. You know, and here we are, you know, so, um, I feel like I see that on a few different levels and it's interesting. It can be frustrating. I try not to let it be frustrating, but I'm a human being like everybody else. So occasionally it is, but, um, yeah, I just, I just try to laugh at myself, laugh at the industry a little bit and, and have fun with it as much as I can. Well, boom. Thank you for taking the time to be on coach. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys for listening. Keep shopping. Wood. Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we dive down another rabbit hole. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a five-star rating. Follow us on Instagram at Austin Yoakum to stay updated on future podcast guests. Keep chopping wood.